0: This is The Bottom Line, a show designed to help Australian businesses succeed. On the show, you'll hear from leading Australian business owners as they share the lessons they've learned building their companies. You'll learn from their successes, as well as some of the challenges they've faced along the way. We also talk to experts from a range of fields who share specialised techniques you can use to improve your business. I'm your host, Savan Tuna. And I'm a director at Alexander Spencer. And I'm really passionate about helping Australian businesses succeed. Today, we're speaking with Peter Boll. Peter is a two-time Australian Olympian who finished fourth in the 800 metre final at the Tokyo Olympics. Outside of athletics, Peter is a speaker, motivator and mentor. He is dedicated to helping people across the globe with goal setting, consistency and resilience. In today's episode, Peter shares his story of migrating to Australia to becoming a professional athlete and gives us the insight to the amazing campaign in Tokyo. You'll learn how to keep motivated when facing setbacks, why facing adversity builds resilience and you'll get tips from a professional athlete to help you achieve your goals. Let's jump in. Peter, thank you for joining me on The Bottom Line. Thank you. Thank you for having me.
1: I'm looking forward to this chat.
0: I am super excited to have you on the show. You are our first ever professional athlete, and I'm such a big believer that business owners can learn so much from professional athletes. So this is going to be a big one for our audience. Take us to the beginning, to your childhood back in Sudan, how you ended up migrating to
1: Australia, and just tell us that early story for us. Firstly, yeah, thanks for having me, and I'm really looking forward to this chat, but yeah, my story I think has been all around, and I'm glad kind of share it in my own kind of voice. And yes, I grew up in Sudan, which is North Sudan, in a city called Khartoum, and I left there when I was six years old. Lived in Egypt for four years, and then I was in Australia by the age of ten. So I was originally in Toomba, Queensland, then relocated to Perth, and then now I'm in Melbourne. So a lot of traveling around. That's awesome, and. When did you get to Perth? Because your sort of
0: journey into running started in Perth and what was it like in that sort of early stages, growing up in Perth, getting accustomed to Australia and all that?
1: We were still trying to get used to Australia, the Australian culture and stuff like that. But at the same time, we could speak English by then. You know, we are four years or so in Australia by then. So Perth was more like trying to now find your place in the school, find your gifts, your talents and what your interests are. And, you know, I started off with like boxing in Toowoomba, played football played every different sport. And when I was in Perth at school, uh, I was actually there for basketball and And then I was doing pretty well at the running competitions because it was compulsory doing athletics. But then, you know, I've got four brothers and we're pretty competitive. So I remember winning the school carnival and I was like, man, that's awesome. I love to be like the fastest out of every school in Perth. And I'm just there like daydreaming. And and I actually went and did it and I came second and I was so disappointed. I was like, man, I want to know why they're faster than me. Fast forward like 10 years later or whatever. And now we're like competing can I be the fastest in the world? So it's a crazy journey. But yeah, growing up with Perth is fine. It was nice. Um, the sun's always there. It's yeah. pretty hot. So getting used to it. Toowoomba was a bit cold. And then the one consistent thing was, you know, I relocated to so many places and I relocated all those places to my family. So I've always had family next to me. So when my family blew up on TV, I was calm because it's like, man, I've been with these guys like my whole life.
0: So you hold on, basketball scholarship. You were playing basketball. You obviously were pretty good at that. When did you do your first run and thought, hold on a sec, I mean you probably did a few runs, but what age were you when you're like, hold on, I can do this?
1: Probably when I did running outside of Athletics Carnival because you do Athletics Carnival at school and then you won't run again till next year. And one of my teachers tapped me in the shoulder. She said, I think you're pretty good. You should do this outside of school. And she did that like in year nine, credit to her. And it took me two years to say, oh, yeah, I think I might give it a go only because I kept losing to this kid who I couldn't understand why I was losing to him. And she just said, mate, I think he does something called a bit of training. Yeah. You were second with just rocking up? Yeah, I was pretty good just rocking up and just raw talent. I was winning schools constantly every year. And then when you go versus other schools, there's about three to 400 students in Western Australia. Mm-hmm. I was coming second. Tell me about 800 metres versus 400,
0: 200. Did you go straight into 800 metres? Was the journey, did it evolve or was that your strength?
1: At all school was cross country and uh, you know, I won the four, the eight, the fifteen. And then when I did outside of school was the 800. So that was when I was in year 11, about 16, 17 years old. So my first time to actually do athletics outside of school and find a coach and train. And I ran the 800 and and I was like, wow, like this is a perfect event. I was a bit lazy, a bit laid back. (laughs) So I I didn't want to do the training for cross country. Neither did I want to do the training for the 1500. Although I think back then I would have probably been a better 1500 runner than an 800 runner. And then I enjoyed the speed and... I didn't want to lose my hops because I read an article. like when you start running a lot, you can't lose your fast switch fibers. And I wanted to stay strong and I'm still playing basketball. I wanted to dunk. So I was like, how can I do that? And it's like speed. And I was too skinny to the 100, 200. So I just went to the four and eight. We got to go straight into Tokyo
0: because I got so many questions post Tokyo. So for our listeners that don't know your Tokyo Olympic success, can you take us through your experience and the races that happened leading up to the final?
1: The first thing i say, oh man, I went into Tokyo so confident. Like, I mean, not arrogant, but confident enough. I remember doing a session in Brisbane, actually, just before flying over overseas. And I just destroyed the session. And I sat there thinking like, man, my coach is building a monster. And honestly, I remember that day and I'm like, there's no way that there's more than 10 people in this world that are faster than me. And it was like such a beautiful thought. I was like, I'm going to have a good Olympic campaign. And. I got on the plane, you know, the first risk I had to take was, because it was COVID year, and we actually recommended not to leave the country. We were supposed to just go from Queensland straight to the Olympics because the risk of getting COVID. But I was like, no, like, I mean, I going to take the risk and go to Europe and compete against the best in the world before having a go at them, at the Olympic Games. So that was the first massive risk that I took, but I didn't see it that way. I was like, man, I just need, I need a few practices. And when I got to Europe and I raced this race in, I think it was in France, And I won it so easily. And then it went from, wow, like, there's no 10 people faster than me. I was like, there's no way there's more than five people faster. (laughs) Tell us the France one, was the, were you competing against the guys that might've been at the Olympics or was it? Yeah, all at the Olympics. And I've seen some of those guys that have run so much faster than me. And I just running, like kind of looking around and I'm like, yep. Like, I mean, I think I'm in good shape. I mean, definitely not 10, but they cannot be given my confidence level and I could control everything in the race. There's no way that anyone could really beat me.
0: I mean, athletics, it's popular in Australia, especially when Olympics games and that comes around. Were you under the radar from sort of the media in Australia? Were you under the radar in athletics media? Like what were you ranked before then? Like tell us about sort of you're going, on, there's, no, there's not too many people faster than me, but what did the media and the people around you say?
1: You don't get a lot of media attention for what your thoughts and You only get that attention for what you do and your achievements. So, I mean, I've been to the Olympics before, but again, the first Olympics, I don't think many people know, the first Olympic Games that I went to was like five years after I started the sport of athletics. So, I didn't even know who I was racing against and there was no experience. I was so nervous and whatnot. So, I finished maybe like, I can't remember what. And the funny thing is there probably wasn't much difference between fitness, between Rio and, and Tokyo, not that much anyways but there was a huge difference between experience and Mm. mindset and, confidence between those two I went completely on the radar from sports bets because some of my friends made pretty good money <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna ask you it's probably
0: we don't promote gambling on the show but I was gonna ask you is uh, what did you come in because coming at the bet what were you do you know that before the heats were you 100 to 1 to win what, what no nah,
1: were- I didn't know the odds but my friend just messaged me and said thank you I made a <laughs> bunch of money out of you and I said that's your results for believing in me and he had inside knowledge and how fit I was and my odds were my trash and I'm just like, it doesn't really bother me. I don't, yeah, I don't look at that stuff. And then like fast forward later to this year's Commonwealth Games, one of my family members calls me while I was at Commonwealth Games and says, Pete, to make money, we have to bet against you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> we can't do it. We, we can't, we're blood. We can't do it. Yet. Oh, no. Well, did I ask for tips? Like, hey, okay, well, if we're betting against you, you're, you're in the no, – you probably don't
1: to answer that, can you? <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Lucky enough, they don't. I just laugh. Oh, I love it. <laughs>
0: Let's go through it. So how many heats do you run and take us to the heats? Tell us the
1: story. Do it in your words. So the 800, so just to make the Olympic team, you got to be top three in your state, then top three in your country. And it's a brutal sport where you got to come top three at the Olympic trials. And so you're you almost got to be like in shape at the right time So because you got to just elevate and elevate. And then on top of that, there's only 48 people in the world that can compete in the 800 metres. And you go through the first... From 48, you go through the first round, it's only top three that get through to the second round, which is the Olympics. So I I broke the Australian record in that first round and kind of just looking around, looking so cruisy. And I remember I was like, I was just slowing down and it was just like Australian record. I was like, wow, yeah. peaking too early there, Peter. (laughs) Yeah, maybe perfect peaking, you know, just just at the right time at the right moment. And to me, it wasn't a surprise because I knew what shape I was in. And then, you know, top three and then the second round is like, gets even brutal and because it's going to be cut to only eight people from 48 to the final and it's only top two so to be safe you got to win it so heats is top three that's heat one then you
0: go heat two top two and the final which is the eight of you so hold on let's go back a step so heat one you break the australian record 144 right
1: you won 44 1 3 i think it was
0: and then you're like all right I've got Heat 2, i got to be top 2, yeah. and then you broke your own record in Heat 2. Is that correct? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And then I reckon that's when I remember it was COVID in Melbourne and your name was everywhere. Just, it was Peter Bowl and it was going crazy. I think when I was looking up, doing some research on you and yourself and the Olympic Games, the final was watched, I think, I mean, you probably know this, the third largest live athletics event 3.5 million people watched it or something crazy like that take us through the steps of breaking the record you're now in the final you would have been one of the first 800 meter male Australians in the final what was that like like all of a sudden your Instagram would have blown up yeah. I'd love to know tell us how you were feeling then as a professional athlete how did that impact did it help your confidence did it make you more nervous what was that like
1: that's a good question because an athlete, you want to be mindful and you want to contain your energy. And I remember during the games, a few athletes turned off their social media and I was sitting there like, should I turn off my social media? And then I'm like, I'm not them. I am who I am and I'm completely fine fine with the social media and I'm completely fine with everything. There's no reason I come to the biggest stage in the world and do something completely different that I've never done before. So I kept it on and I just embraced it. And the beauty with social media is you can turn it on and off whenever you want it to, ever getting too much. But there was so much hype i love my family because there's a lot of time in the papers and stuff like that and i remember reading stories it's like when did you guys know pete was serious and one of my brothers like uh, when he started eating wheat beaks every day or something like that. <laughs> uh, he's trying to get sponsorship right there <laughs> i just found that funny and i just embraced it all it was insane like i think i went to olympics with seven to eight thousand followers and then i went after olympics with like forty-eight thousand. yeah yeah it was, just, it was just something ridiculous like that it's just on like the space of there were so many records broken, like how many people watched on TV, how many followers went up, like record messages my phone has ever had. And then the records that I broke, you know, on the track, like how many years they are broken. So I guess the hype was necessary because it was building up for it too. It was
0: huge. So now take us to the race. We're in the final. You've run Australian You've broken it twice. You must be through the moon. Take us to the moment, and I want to talk about mindset later and goal setting and a lot of things around how you prepared for this and how you prepare as an athlete. You're at the race. What's going through your head? What are you absorbing? You're taking on the crowd. What are you thinking? What lane were you in again?
1: I was in lane seven, I think.
0: Take us through. Your gun's about to go. How are you feeling?
1: Well, I don't know if it was a good thing or a bad thing because usually my best races, I tune everything off. So there wasn't any crowds. So it was quiet. Like it was just still. Surreal. You could hear people's voices if you were speaking in the stadium. It was that quiet. So for me, I was just like, if you know that 800 and, you know, racing and tactics, the first two heats that I was on, we had a front runner. The races were fast. So it suited me. I love fast races. I love getting after it. What happened in the final is all those front runners got knocked out. So in that final it was like a little bit more went through my head is like, because as an athlete, you don't really know what's going to happen, but you can kind of predict it because you've been hmm. in that situation long enough. And it's like muscle memory. You know, that athlete might go for it. But in the final, it's like, man. There is no one in this final that is going to take the lead and go for it because everyone comes from the back. Wow. Or stays and waits, or puts the handbrake on and tries to race the last 100 meters. So you see the heat in the semifinals were a second and a bit faster than the final. So it was like a slow race, but it was a tactical race. So in my head, I was like, who's going to take it? Man, just relax. It doesn't matter. Just run your first 200. If no one's there, just sit on the front and stay controlled and... Man, credit to myself, I did exactly what my race plan was. It's just, you know, those guys were better on the day and they did have faster 400 speed than I did. And those are the guys that ended up beating me at the line.
0: What's your strategy?
1: I like kind of sitting top three. Okay. I don't like being too far back, although I can. I can't come from too far back, but sometimes you just have to do so much work, going weaving around people. Mm. So I like kind of being in the middle because like if you're in the middle, I'm like, yep, one, two, three. I and
0: chasing back. also probably helps chasing that sort helps. of the chase. But one of my questions was because I did look at the stats and I knew you broke the record in the heats. I did look at the times of the final. I'm like, hold on, Peter ran the fastest 800 meters in the Olympics. Is that right? Did you run the fastest time in the whole of the races?
1: Second fastest, yeah.
0: Did you feel a little bit like I wish there was a front runner because I reckon I had this, or was it the you know what I'm getting at? Did yeah, it not yeah. suit you not having the front runner? That
1: kind yeah, it, def- of, it definitely yeah. didn't suit me as much as the other guys and. Yeah, myself, my coach and my manager were thinking, how's this race going to go? That's the 800s these days. It's yeah. so unpredictable.
0: And you would have been super proud. I don't know what you were thinking, what you wanted to do. Obviously, you wanted to win. I think the world's, well, definitely Australians and the Sudanese would have celebrated like hell and we did that.
1: That's what probably I was proud of the most, of like how many people kind of came together and to support yeah. myself and the whole Olympics. But in terms of high performance, in terms of your own personal goals, it's still like get to reality that we didn't succeed because we might have came to the final, but we still didn't achieve the medal, we didn't achieve a win in any way possible. But like I'm proud of how many people kind of we brought together and how far we got, but there was still like job wasn't done and just had to kind of sit there and reflect on that.
0: I want to talk about maybe a little bit of time. This is a really interesting question. So you started really late and you got to the Australian record. So talk us through what were you running I don't know, when you were 17, 18, 19, those early stages.
1: Well, I run now 144.00. My first 800 was like 206.
0: Wow. And you are still doing, you're obviously good enough to compete. So tell me about the gap that you close. Is that mindset? Is that nutrition? Is that training? I mean, you started so late and then you've just gone from 206 to 144 in such a short period of time. Is that great coaching? What was all that about?
1: I think it's a combination of so many different things you know a combination of one you're pretty unconditioned and you're raw talented so you got to do the physical work so you've got to get to training and do the laps get strong get strong in the gym and do all of that stuff and then once you're there then now you gotta have the experience of competing because competition is like some athletes can train like you just watch some training and you're like whoa and then when they get to a race it's like what happened like you've been in shape and you know you're in shape and then you have to get in competition and realize like you got to breach the gap between competition and training. It's got to be kind of the same. It's, it's like, it's the same thing you do. So my motto, same distance, different track. So what that means is you're still running 800 meters no matter where you are, whether you're in Tokyo, whether you're in Australia, it just has a bigger name. Like it's Olympic Games, but it was still the same 800 meters that I ran in Perth the first time I ran. It's just completely with different people. So for me to do that, it was like, uh, and I had to practice that year after year after year. So that, and then great coaching. I've got a great coach who's passionate. And then within coaching, it's like we have a great system of communication with my coach, my manager, my strength conditioning coach. So they all have to tie in together. And then the person that has to tie in the most, like the structure is you because you've got to communicate how you're feeling, what your goals are to all these different people. And it takes like any business, it takes time to get everyone on the same team and excited and motivated and they kind of help each other out.
0: Now I want to talk about post-Tokyo and talk about your background you are an inspiration to all migrants in Australia. I'm a migrant myself. I came to Australia when I was seven and I look at what you've done and you would be such an inspiration to some of those young kids. And you came here for, obviously, I'm guessing for a better life, better opportunity. And I know you are proof that hard work and dedication, anything is possible. What advice do you have to young children that have come to Australia with their family for a better life? I mean, you were very fortunate to have the talent you've got, but You're still a migrant. It's a new country. You learned a little bit about your new English a little bit. Tell us about what can you give to those young migrants? What would you say to them?
1: I guess my first Olympic Games in Rio, I was pretty young, pretty raw first. and I got to the Olympic Games and I'm super, super excited. And I'm just watching every single person. Like you see, same Bolt and the Jamaicans. You see the Americans. You see every single different culture there. I remember I was at the warm up track, and this was funny later on. But at the time, it wasn't funny because I didn't compete pretty well. But. I remember I was the one with track and I'm like, man, I want to be like same Bolt and Jamaicans. They just look like they're having so much fun before the Olympics started. And it's like, I want to be like them. And then I look at the Kenyans and East Africans because they're so small and they just look so shy and nervous. I'm like, I don't want to be like them. They look like they've already lost the Olympic Games. <laughs> and then you see the Americans, they were tense and you see the Australians are kind of relaxed. And I was trying to figure out like, who do I want to be like? And I was like, yeah, I want to be like the Jamaicans. And at the end of that championship, the Jamaicans dominated, the Kenyans dominated the track. Australians did well at their events and so did the Americans. And like, I guess the first thing is you don't have to be like anyone else. You've got to kind of be yourself. And, you know, coming from two different countries and coming to Australia, which is so multicultural and you have so many different cultures. Firstly, you want to be like the Australians. You want to be like other people and all that stuff. It's like you got to kind of bridge the gap, embracing the new Australian culture, but keeping who you are. That's probably the most important one. You got to kind of be yourself. So that was powerful. And the moment I realized that I can be myself, it's like you're kind of at peace with Mm. your training yourself you can do things so effortlessly like it's just nice so that's number one and number two you've got to put in the work everyone does put in work here and there but it's not necessarily the work that they want to do we always especially coming from school as a migrant we're always like I want to do what my friend's doing they're playing footy it just looks so fun it's like Australian culture they're playing rugby, but I was into basketball. Like it's okay for you to go play basketball while your friends are doing different sports and you guys come together. It's fine. You don't have to follow your friends and do all of these different things that you're actually not into. It's just a lot easier doing things that you enjoy doing rather than trying to follow other people. And it takes a little bit longer, it takes some time. It takes you sitting down and realizing what you want to do. It might take a year, it might take six months and trial and error and whatnot. But the moment you find like exactly what you want to do and you're happy with it, then you can set goals. And then eventually nothing is easy. Like you hit hurdles and whatnot. But when you hit those hurdles, you kind of try to work things around them. But if you don't like it, it's easy just to get discouraged. So that's pretty important being yourself and then finding something that you love doing. And number three, find people. You need people with you. I know athletics, it seems like Peter Ball, Peter Ball broke a record and whatnot. But I've got a lot of people behind me. Like you've seen my family all on TV. Those guys have been consistent through my whole life. And then I've got my coach, my manager. You got to find people that you can kind of lean to set goals with and help you with, because maybe you might be able to do it by yourself, but even if you can, it's so much more enjoyable when you do it with other people. And it's lonely if you're by yourself. So never think I do everything by myself. I've got so many people in my corner. And the final one I think is you gotta have fun. You can never leave that element of fun, no matter how hard we train and whatnot. When I get overseas and part of me being so successful, it was because the first time I went to Europe in 2015, and I met family that I haven't seen in years. And I was like, whoa, like all I have to do is run fast to come back and see family from across the world and see a different light, see different insights, see different cultures. Man, that's cool. Like as soon as I get off the track, I want to meet the people. I want to hear the people's stories. Like it's awesome. I love reading books about different cultures, but athletics made me like put the books down and just go have conversations with people that I see around the world. So no matter how much goals you set for your work and stuff like that, never forget the human element.
0: Well, that leads me perfectly to the next question. You have a pretty large family. They're obviously super proud of you. You've kind of answered this, but how has their support contributed to your success, especially on the early days?
1: One, my parents, believe it or not, have never told me to go to a training session before. And they've always been invested in me as a person rather than the sports itself. And that's so powerful, man, because sports, you kind of go up and down. You never want to feel like People love you just because you're good at something. They just love you for who you are. So um, they've always been consistent like that. And two, they probably don't know what the Australian record is, but doesn't mean they don't support or anything like that. They've always just kind of been there. So having that support has always been like they've got you no matter what you do. It doesn't matter what you do. It just matters who you are as a person, more to them. And
0: it's that safety net. It gives you comfort that whether you're successful, you fail or you win, they're always your parents. They're going to love you. They're there. It's a beautiful thing. Um, I've beautiful. got two girls and parenting's a difficult thing and you're kind of winging it as you go. But that's great advice for parents, obviously, done a great job with you. And having that there, unconditional love, regardless, is so, so powerful. Now, you've achieved so much in such a short period of time. How do you stay humble, but at the same time, confident and arrogant enough that you can take on and beat the best?
1: Staying humble is just kind of being yourself and there's a competition element where you need that. As an athlete, you need that little bit of arrogance. Not, rarely did I ever go in a race and being scared of the guy next to me and I beat him before. Like, you go into a race and thinking, like, I'm going to win. And if you don't win, you trying to you play that like game. It's like trying to figure out, like why didn't I win? But the arrogance and confidence got to be kind of leveled up. I'm not sitting there before the Olympic Games saying, there's no one can beat me. And I'm not training. I'm just sitting there on the couch. I'm saying that out of complete belief and the training session I've done and the times we measure these results like, okay, I'm so much faster in the 400 and the 800 than I was last year. I'm so much more confident. So you're not saying it out of arrogance and you just kind of got to work that with yourself. So once you put in the work, it's confidence. And if you kind of not putting in the work and getting in people's faces, then that's kind of arrogance. So I kind of just play level with that. And again, it's family. Like, I mean, at the same time, last year was the fourth fastest person in the world it doesn't mean I treat anyone differently, whether my competitors or anyone else. And that's, I think that's how I stay humble. Just because I run a little bit faster than you doesn't mean you're less than me. It doesn't mean I treat you in a different or, or I treat the Olympic champion any more better than anyone else. I treat them the same. We're just people at the end of the day.
0: Now let's talk about business and you helping our little audience of business owners with a little bit of your professionalism and how you've approached athletics. Now business owners can learn so much from you guys and I've done no research on this statement, but I don't think there would be a successful athlete that is not good at goal setting. What is your approach to goal setting and who taught you?
1: I honestly fluked into goal setting. I think I was at school and I read an article and I think in 11, 12, I did um, P studies and we had to do mental training and stuff like that. And part of it was goal setting. I was like, you got to set smart goals. I'm like, what are you talking <laughs> about? Like who's, who sets dumb goals anyways? <laughs> And she said, no, no, no. You got to set like specific goals. They're going to be measurable. They're going to be attainable. They're going to be time timeframe. I'm like, oh, it kind of makes sense. So the first time I set a goal was like, before I even started 800 meters, I, I figured out like what I need to do to be at the next Olympics. And then I'm going to close that gap. And I was like, I ran like 208 or something, but I printed out a sheet. I literally went on Word and I put 208, 207, all the way down to 145. And I was crossing them out every single year. So I guess the number one tip is... Like you can set goals and you get pretty excited with people and whatnot. But within a week, within two weeks, a month or six months, you might forget it. But if you can write it down and see it every single day, it's a powerful reminder. Don't just set it in your head and leave it there. Got to be able to see it visually. And for me, I just had it on a board where I could see it every single day for like five years. Like I knew like I just saw that goal. And to be completely honest, I think I set a goal was like 145.8 and I ran like one forty five point seven nine. And it's like wow. that, just seeing it every single time. And then number two, you like you gotta set realistic goals too. And with realistic goals, it's okay when you don't set realistic goals because you learn. And it's like, oh, I started in 2011 and the Olympics of 2012. Mm-hmm. That would have been kind of unrealistic. You gotta set real realistic goals, so that's important. And number three, you gotta share it with someone else. Accountability is powerful. You gotta have accountability, like whether well, it's your parents, whether well, it's your teacher, whether well, it's your coach. I had a great mentor, my teachers. My teacher's father, who was mentoring me, and we just went there and sat down and talked about it. We would not be like too into the goal, we just talk more about life. Like, it's okay, you, you might not win here, and it's the power of staying consistent, small goals over time. So, that leads to you got to set specific long term and short term goals. So, my short term goals, like, okay, before the Olympics, that's huge, like, it makes sense to kind of win the Australian championship first. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Because you can't set an Olympic goal and you're not even going to Australian championships because that's how you're going to get to the Olympics. So you got to kind of dis- construct your goal and see what steps you need to be. To make an Olympic Games, I knew I need to be top three in the state. Once I tick that off, you got to be top three in the country. And then now you got to be in shape for the national championship and there's a time that you got to run, so you got to kind of write it down.
0: You push your body to the limits and I'm sure your brain is telling you a lot of the times, mate, we're done here. I'm not moving those legs any faster. How do you challenge the brain to just keep going? Like that mindset, surely you're knackered after an 800 meters. How does your self-talk go? How do you control your brain? And tell us about the mindset that you have.
1: It leads to a question that I've always asked. When do you have the best race? And I say the best race I've ever had is a race where I thought about absolutely nothing. And that's when you're just completely in peace, in motion. Like when I was running those heats and semis, I don't remember what I was thinking. I was thinking absolutely nothing because I raced one race one time and with 200 to go, I'm thinking, should I make this move? And by the time I convince myself that someone has already cut you off. You just got to trust yourself. And like I've trained for years. So it's just, it's automatic muscle memory. And then two is, man, if you learn to breathe, I know we all breathe, but like do it intentionally. It's really hard to think too much if you're kind of, you know, taking deep breath in and out. And every time you, you kind of come with those thoughts. When I do at training, I just learn to breathe, just focus on my breathing. And before you know it, you go back and do another rep. And then also number three, I got my coach with me. We know when the limits are. We know like, okay, so we did a session one time and this was before COVID and we're in great shape. And when the Olympics got postponed and the session was two 200s, a 400 another two 200s. And man, we just, we were moving, we were moving so fast. Myself and Joseph, my training partner, and we ran quick in the two, ran another quick in the two. And then we ran a ridiculous four. And my coach is like, yep, that's all you need. You're not going to get any better doing an extra 200s to her then. And you just got to know when the limits are physically because they can drain you too. So knowing that and knowing when, like, you just got to be tougher. Like those endurance sessions, you got to be tougher and just do your thing. And also, like, you got to know your body too, like if you're injured and whatnot. So self-awareness is, I'd say, it's the biggest key.
0: And do you do meditation? We talked about breathing. Do you meditate? Do you journal or anything like that?
1: More journaling than meditation. I guess meditation is like part of just being. So I guess I do meditate because I love going on bike rides around like the river and whatnot. And those times I absolutely think of nothing. Like I'm just riding the bike and, and just being present. I think that's what meditation is. Find things that you love that way you are present. Then I guess i will do it so much if you put in that context. And journaling, I've always kind of like all these stories that I'm saying, they've all been written down somewhere. I remember my first Olympics, I was trying to be like someone else. My second Olympics, like I'm not going to try to be like anyone else. I'm going to just be myself. And I remember when I said, again, even at the second Olympics, I was thinking like, should I turn off my social media because everyone else is doing it? And then I recall back to that and I was like, no, you just got to be yourself. So young and so
0: inspiring. We talked a little bit about this, the physical element to the mindset of your success, but it's your mind that makes you get up in the morning. It's the brain, the, the thing that's in between the ears that says, I've got to rock up to training in the right attitude and all of that. You must have the talent between the ears. And how did you make the brain make that talent get to the Olympics? And what advice would you have to business owners that have this awesome product, but they're just not successful, but it's, just, it's elements of putting your mind to it, being goal oriented and just. Perceiving and pushing through the hurdles of getting there. Talk us through that mindset around the physical nature, and again, just expand on how you think business yeah. owners can learn from you guys.
1: The most powerful thing is having conversations and getting different insights from different people. Gaining my mental strength was like as a result of being in all different cultures and seeing how mm. people do different things, and reading a bunch of books and whatnot. But also like if you just sit down there and have a conversation we are so lucky because we have the internet, we have books and we have everything. But the most powerful, like I remember, like I'm trying to gain mental strength. I'm like, who feels more confident that I know personally? And I was like, man, my parents, everyone's rewarding. Like my story is blowing up because I guess they're saying you come from this hardship and whatnot. I'm sitting there like, I mean, not really. Like I came to Australia when I was 10 years old. They made sure I didn't see any of that stuff. Like they did. And I'm like, how did they handle that? And you just sit down Mm. there and have a conversation with your parents. And you could use that for like, I don't know how, but it works. But for 800 meters, you get so much more purpose and drive and motivation from hearing other people's stories. It doesn't necessarily have to be about what you necessarily want to do and what product you're working on or what sports you're doing. The best motivation I got wasn't from people that ran 800. The world record holder for 800 is David Radisha. I've never spoken to him about the 800. My first coach never ran a 100 meter race in his life. Both of my coach and manager right now, They don't run 800 meters. They ran in their time, but they ran one run 151, one run 147 and somehow running 144. So the people that might give you inspiration and insight, not necessarily the people that in your field, you got to kind of go invest somewhere else and get that motivation. Because again, if you're creating a product, you're creating a business, it's personal to you. So you got to kind of keep it to that. And I think you figure a way out. And number two is you can't just quit. It just takes time. If you quit, it means there's something in that journey you're kind of enjoying. Because I just enjoy it. Like if I quit in my first time, that kid keep beating me, I would never be here with you right now. If I quit at my first Olympics, and I was so disappointed, I remember. I was so disappointed because I was like, man, I'm in great shape. I'm going to do well. And I got knocked out in the heat, whatever. And then I got knocked out again in London. They're following me in the semis, knowing the heats again. It's like if I quit in any of those moments, this whole Peter Ball story would be completely different and unheard of. So you can't just end it whenever you feel like it. You just you kind of got to commit and you got to give it a go. The only time I would recommend quitting, if it is, you got to take care of your mental health and your well-being. If it's getting really hard on you and whatnot, just take a break, take a pause and whatnot. I've done that. Like after the first Olympics, I took two months off. I was just like, I don't really want to be running. And when I started running, I was like, I'm going to run without a watch. Just kind of get back to enjoying it again and not putting so much pressure on myself.
0: Tell us the story. You were low at one point in your life. How did you get out of it? And do you want to expand on how you get out of your lows?
1: Through trials and errors. Firstly, you got to build that resilience. And it's okay that resilience might take time. The first time I remember not performing well, it took me like two months and a bit to come back to training. The year after again, when I didn't do well, it took me two months. And then it was getting lower and lower and lower. And then understanding is like, it's okay to fail. Because to be honest, if I didn't fail and I was always on a high, Tokyo wouldn't have been as big. If I was breaking records back then, it wouldn't have been as big right now, you know? So it's like, it's okay to do that. I just kind of remind myself, just kind of keep moving, keep going, speak to people. As long as you're enjoying it, you'll find the way, find something that you enjoy. And the best thing I do, most athletes take about two to four weeks break and myself and my training partner, Joseph, we take so much longer. And I know it takes a lot to get back and I always regret it coming back. But when I get back, I'm not worried about the times I'm hitting. I put my watch down. I just train with flats. I just enjoy it, enjoy it. And eventually you kind of get fit. And then before then you kind of put your watch back, but your body and mind needed that break more. And it does so much better than bad for you, I think. Pete, you
0: love Australia. Much of you still bleed Sudanese. And do you have any plans to go back and help your community back in Sudan?
1: Yeah, definitely. And I think there's so many Sudanese here and I think it's a great start. And I do so much work here to help the Sudanese community that's here and start here first but man I think the biggest fear for me for going back home is because just being in Paris or being in South Africa and meeting people that I knew back in Sudan and telling me stories and how powerful and motivated that I felt it's like the biggest thing for me was like man if I go back there I'm afraid I won't come back for a while and I've still got things here to do and I've still got running to go and I think when I go back there, I'd like to stay for quite some time and because I think I can offer a lot of help to a lot of people. And and I also think that's like the next big thing that I need to do because you remember like human connection is important and that's how I gain most of my motivation, like gain most of my motivation from people. So I think leading up to the Olympics, I need to get there sometime before the next Olympics and spend a few months, two months, just absolutely nothing and see where you came from, where you grew up. And I think that would be like such a powerful feel. And I already know it would. So I'm kind of looking forward to going next year after the season, after World Champs.
0: The other thing that I wanted to ask, you've come forth in the Olympic Games. Australia's gone wild. You've got fans everywhere. But apparently the, your biggest fan was the Prime Minister at the time. <laughs> Tell us about that because did he try to call you? What happened? Tell us the story.
1: On my way to a basketball game, Australia versus the US. And I love basketball and One of the AOC committee members said, Pete, the prime minister wants to speak to you. Can we give him your number? I'm like, are you allowed to say anything? Like, of (laughs) course, like give him him my number. And so he didn't call that day. And I was already in Europe by the second day. So I think he thought I was still in Tokyo, which is the same time zone. And he called me at an odd hour. I think it was like 4 a.m. in the morning. Like I was coming back from a night out, I think. And uh, I went to sleep and my phone was ringing and I just looked at it and I hung up. Because I mean, who has the prime minister's number? It wasn't really a
0: private call?
1: That's the thing. So it had the number It, anyway. it wasn't a private call and I'm like, sure, oh. okay. And he left me a voicemail and I was like, surely that's not his number. So I was like, I just tried anyways. And then I called back and he picked up. So I've got his number saved on my phone. I'm like, man, 18 years ago I was an Australian citizen and now like I've got the Prime Minister on the phone and got his number, which is pretty really cool. Do you have the voicemail
0: still on your yeah, phone? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've got to have a listen to this. Well, he's not the Prime Minister anymore, but it would have been huge at the time. Good night, Peter. It's the It's raining good. Thank
1: you for everything you've done in Tokyo. Not just your achievements on the track, but the way you've gone about it. you a great deal for a lot of people at a very difficult time. And uh, I loved what you had to say after the race about what's ahead. Uh, I think that's true for the whole country. So thanks for lifting us up, mate. And uh, I look forward to your safe journey back home. And uh, I, I look forward to meeting you. I'd really love to do that. Take care. All the best. Wow. So
0: when you called him back, was it a long conversation? How did it go?
1: No, we just kind of spoke and he was asking where I was and you know, how I experienced and when you're coming back, I'd really like to meet you. And most so he's just saying congratulations. And again, when I spoke earlier on like about my parents, in his, he was saying I really love what you're doing off the track. I mean the track is important but like what you do, track finishes eventually so what you do outside of the track would be eventually really important too.
0: You do a lot of speaking at the moment. You do You're a keynote speaker, you go on lots of, things like podcasts like you did today for us and you, you are giving back is that something that you've naturally liked to do and or just during this fame and being in front of the camera
1: I never do although I've now got such a massive platform and so much more attention and whatnot I'll never do something I don't enjoy doing like I, my first speaking gig was when I finished school and I used to go to indigenous communities and I did it every single year so I've always done speaking I've done like Hundreds and hundreds, hundreds speaking before that. And I enjoyed it. I've done podcasts and whatnot. It's just I didn't have a platform and my name wasn't as big. So it wasn't just because you're big and now you're entering all these, like, I would rather do this, 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 that. That's something I always enjoyed. And it just comes so naturally speaking to different schools. I started schools like primary schools and I went to like high schools and corporates and whatnot. So it's like something that wasn't so natural, but it's something that I enjoyed doing and it developed over time. It started honestly the same time as I started running. So like 11 years ago.
0: Pete, we're so proud to have you as a client at the firm. My staff was so excited to know you were coming in today. I asked them to send me questions to ask you and I've picked three that I want to ask. So the first one is, do you have a morning routine and what is it?
1: So I get up and first thing is... I try to kind of just sit down like for five minutes, do absolutely nothing. So get up really slow. You don't get up and just rush to things in and you think first thing I look at my phone on my calendar and what I have to do throughout the day, just kind of sit down and kind of put your phone completely off and just spend time with yourself. What are you are making yourself? Breakfast, making yourself coffee. And then that way you're like just mindful and it's actually pretty peaceful and you just sit down and have it. And then. After that, I kind of look at what I need to do. But what that is, I kind of already know what I need to do. So I already know my training session. And I know what I'm going to do. So I start my training maybe at nine, ten, depending on the day. So i get that done. So one is sitting by yourself. Two, it's I kind of listen to a podcast or read something, just something small, just an insight or something like that. So whether a quick conversation with someone that's usually I have a housemate. So whether we just have a chat or if I'm at a cafe, sit down, instead of being on your phone, just talk to the baristas or whatnot, and then you kind of learn something. So one, I guess, obviously sitting by yourself Two, is try to learn something, whether that's having a small conversation, whether that's reading a book, whether that's going through a podcast. And number three, you kind of get on with your day, whatever you need to do, whether get ready for work, get ready for a training session. For me, it's personally, I like to stretch and do the small things, warming up before I get to training. So I'm already kind of warmed up.
0: My second question is, did you have a sports hero growing up? And do you have someone you currently look up to?
1: Yeah, and they've never been like runners because I mean, I never got into running. My first one was Muhammad Ali. I always loved Muhammad Ali and more I loved what he did on and off the track because I think that's so on and off the boxing ring, I guess, because I think that's so much more important. Muhammad Ali spoke so much about poverty, racism. He spoke about the people and then he was in there still doing his thing. Like He spoke for what he stood for and he competed in the sports of boxing. It was, it was awesome. And then Another sports person I looked up to was Kobe Bryant. The man, the black mamba. And then I guess people always ask you, like, who do you look up to? I'm like, my parents and my family, like, they're right. Because when you say, who do you look up to? It's like, I don't need to look up too far or go look too long. There's people right at home that you can literally look up to and you can ask them, like, their stories and whatnot. Last one. Who was the person that had the most influence
0: in your life? You can only pick one. Maybe most influence from an athletic perspective.
1: I think my teacher at school because one I think as a teacher she did great like you as a student you're helping your students at school but on top of that she recognized that I had a talent and she said Pete you need to do it outside of school and I didn't really do it and second year she said Pete you need to do it I said no and then she recognized maybe he doesn't know how to and whatnot she said can we set a meeting with your parents and she said that meeting and she's like I'll help him get into it and my dad would like to be his mentor then like as a kid and you know being a Margaret your parents don't know I didn't even know running with a sport, let alone then where to go for training and where to go for all of that stuff. And once that's taken care of for a kid that loves something to do, then all they have to do is just rock up and do the training. It makes it a lot easier. And she did that and it changed my whole life, I think.
0: Is she still in your life? Do you speak to her? Yet? Yeah,
1: I saw her last week, actually, while I was in Perth. So everyone that's helped me through the journey, I've always stayed really close with them. So I was, I see her every single year.
0: It's funny, I've listened to a few podcasts you've been on and whatnot, but the thing that came out of today's discussion was it's all about people for you. I got this feeling that you leverage the people around you, you leverage conversations with people. I have a chat with the barista. Like it's Pete Bowl here, man. Like yeah. the barista's probably jumping out of the coffee machine <laughs> to want to have a chat with you. But you want to, to embrace that communication and that's just so inspirational and so humble in the way that you can do that. Pete, you are an inspiration to so many people not only in Australia, but in your birth country, Sudan. Please keep doing what you're doing. I wish you all the best with the next lot of races coming up. And a big thank you for joining me on The Bottom Line.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me. Look forward to coming back. This is The Bottom
0: Line, a show designed to help Australian businesses succeed. This podcast was produced by accountancy firm Alexander Spencer. At Alexander Spencer, we've been helping business owners realise their goals since 1952 and we play a pivotal role in developing, implementing and supervising the business goals and strategies of our clients. To find out how we can help your business succeed, head to our website, alexanderspencer.com.au. To make sure you don't miss an episode of The Bottom Line, be sure to subscribe to or follow the show in your podcast app, And while you're there, leave us a five-star review. It really helps others find the show. I'm Savan Tuna, and we'll be back next episode with more tips to help you transform your business. And that's The Bottom Line.